Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 30 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physician and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them as a patient based on what I've heard. Jonathan, why don't you kick it off today? Thanks, Jeremy. Hey, Robbie, great to be with you again. Great to so, have you back, Jonathan. Looking forward to today's uh, show. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I was thinking about my medical school education, and I read uh, an immense textbook, which is Harrison's, which you're familiar with, and many of our listeners are, and it probably was a thousand pages. And there was something missing in that book, which has come back to bite me on more than one occasion in my clinic, relating to patient care and also working with my colleagues. And now in the leadership role, it's something that really would have been a useful lesson. And it has to do with the issue of the role of trust in healthcare. I took it for granted that patients coming to see me would take my opinion, would listen to my advice, and then would dutifully follow whatever instructions I gave them. They would show back for a follow-up clinic and everything would have gone according to plan. I realized later, looking at the history of healthcare and the history of medicine, that I was working on a pretty old-fashioned model of healthcare, which was a very paternalistic one uh, back in the days when doctors would essentially tell patients what to do and communication was one-sided. I had one particular patient who came to see me, and as I always do, I said, what brings you here today? And she began with, well, you'll never believe all the horrible things my other doctors did to me. They almost killed me. And it gave me pause and made me realize that if I was to have any meaningful impact or benefit for this person, I'd first have to explore and work through issues of trust and mis mistrust. Otherwise, we would get nowhere. Robbie, I'm curious from your perspective, is trust something that you see as being a problem or us having a deficit in healthcare, not enough of, as we spoke of on a previous episode, or do you think that's an overblown issue? It's a great issue to focus on. I think there's at least three different, I don't call them levels because they're not one above another, but three different parts to trust in, in medicine. You're raising the first question, your patient, and how we establish trust with the individuals who put their lives into our hands as clinicians. Then there's the trust of leadership and leadership leading physicians. And I think there's even a question of uh, called collegial trust. And each of them are slightly different. Uh, when you go back to the question you're posing on patients, the first thing that comes to my mind is that we think of trust as, I'll say, extremely educated, by that I mean 10 years of medical school and residency training, as trust deriving from expertise. So the number of diplomas on my wall, the number of papers I wrote, the school I went to, I went to for medical school where I did my residency, 
the titles that we have. This is how we think about trust, because we want to trust someone who has better training, more expertise, uh, has been vetted by colleagues. That's not what, I mean, patients want to know that, obviously, but I, I, as you know, I teach the business school and I had my first class this week and some of the students were talking about this question and I asked them, how many people in this room know where their doctor went to medical school, where their doctor did their residency? How many articles their physician has published? And remember, these business students are the kind of individuals who can tell you down to the third decimal point about anything having to do with an investment. And here they're investing their life. They don't have the first set of ideas. So the trust is relational. And I believe, Jonathan, one of the challenges is in medical school, we're often taught, not necessarily in a printed word or a specific uh, lecturer's uh, pr presentation to us, we're, we're taught that you shouldn't become too emotionally involved with the patient. It's bad. It warps your judgment. And patients want to know that. They want to know that you're going to be there when they need you. They, they recognize that you have the expertise. That's why they came to you in the first place. Now they want to know about that relationship. And I think in medicine, we undervalue it, Jonathan. And unless we rebuild it, I don't know what happened to that patient and the doctor. Maybe the doctor really did terrible things, misdiagnoses and made errors in prescription. But I'm going to guess that a major part of what happened is that when the patient had the greatest difficulties, suffering the most, needed to get to see someone, to see this human on who they were dependent, that individual was difficult to find. And when they arrived, they were not particularly empathetic. Robbie, I appreciate how you set it up into three groups of patients, leaders, and colleagues, and I'm excited to move forward and explore the others. Sticking with this patient-provider professional relationship, you're, you're hitting on something which for me is an important distinction. It's the di distinction between credibility, which is when you say something, can I believe in what you're saying? Is it factually accurate? Do you have the expertise and the training? And that's really my belief in your knowledge and your ability. And then you really, you seem to be hitting on a second aspect here, which is, can I trust in your behavior? Which is not just your knowledge, but it's also your empathy, your compassion, your consistency, and can I rely upon you? So that gets into the feeling piece. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on this because you have had an amazing podcast, which was Coronavirus The Truth. And when I think about the title, The Truth, it seems to me like you and Jeremy were responding to a sense out there that there's a lot of mistruths. And if we're talking about trust, we have to talk about both credibility and also care and compassion. How do you guide patients or how would you advise any patients when they're really not sure where do they find the truth and how do they tell the differences? I think we need to help patients be better advocates for themselves and I'm curious as to your opinion on that. So you're raising, Jonathan, again, a couple of issues. As a podcast host, Jeremy and I started Coronavirus the Truth because people couldn't get answers that were, I'll say, fully authentic. 
the information coming out of the CDC, the information coming out of uh, the mouths of some of the other leaders, it was couched in politics. Mm -hmm. And when your life's on the line, you don't want anything couched in politics. You, you want to know the truth. And we actually now shifted the title since coronavirus has faded into the rearview mirror to medicine, the truth, because I think the same thing is true in medicine. It's very hard to find out. Everyone seems to be promoting themselves for economic reasons. The drug companies talking about a life-saving drug and you look at the details and yeah, maybe it's a tiny bit better. Maybe it's not. You know, you look at hospitals that are all claiming to be the best and you go there and there are a lot of problems and difficulties and you can't quite figure out which physician is the one who's going to provide the uh, care for you. So figuring out how to get information that you can rely on that is not going to be biased, that is not going to be self-serving, I think is hmm. problematic. And that's where I think patients remain today. We can talk about the future because I think it's, it's going to change with ChatGPT. Again, not this version, but one two, three versions from now, three to five years into the future. But right now, I think patients are dependent upon clinicians. They can go to Google and they can find a variety of links and articles, but for the most part, they can't interpret it. They don't have expertise. So that's where I think the clinician comes in, and that takes time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, as you know very well, being a leader in uh burnout and the challenges facing clinicians today, that's in short supply. It's mm -hmm. not available. And so taking the time to really discuss and review, provide the expertise, do the type of education, as you say, doctors often rely on a patriarchal type approach. I tell you what to do and I expect that you're going uh, to do it. Mm -hmm. There's an expression that I learned early in my career that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And I just think we don't realize that. Or maybe we do realize it. We just think we can't do it because we don't have the time to accomplish it. Um, I don't know if you read the study where they took a bunch of questions that patients asked on Reddit, on social media. Uh, it was going to be interpreted by a group of physicians. And they had the answers from physicians to these questions that the patient posed. And then they asked the same thing to generative AI, chat GPT, actually GPT-4. And interestingly enough, 80% of the time, independent observers, they brought in other clinicians who didn't know who wrote the responses. 80% of the time, they picked the response out of the generative AI as being more accurate than being written out of the human. But interestingly enough, nine times more often, the generative AI was judged to be more empathetic than what the clinician did. And I just believe that this has to be reinserted into our system. And if we don't have enough time, we have to figure out how to create that time, or we have to figure out who's going to do it for the patient. Because right now, I think the biggest challenge, you're pointing to it, it's basically impossible for a patient to figure out what's the right care to get, who is the right expert to listen to, how can I be certain that the information I'm getting is unbiased and not self-serving. Mm. Well, you raised so many points there, especially around chat GPT, which you alluded to what's the future of trust and what is the role of generative AI and uh, learning models uh, in terms of getting accurate information and sometimes faster than you can get it from a physician. At rounding out this part of the conversation, 
Now, when I see individuals, I make an assumption when they come into my clinic, and it may be right or wrong, but I assume that this person has had their trust broken by someone in the past. And just by starting with that basic assumption, it helps me pay a little more attention to perhaps they've had prior trauma in their life, perhaps they had issues as a child, uh, perhaps in certain communities like the African American community, they're familiar with the Tuskegee syphilis uh, experience over a 40 year period where there were unethical experiments done in that community to great harm. Uh, so this is an unaddressed, often undiscussed issue, which in the real world has implications for patient safety, for patient outcomes, for, and especially for cost. Uh, costs are always higher if we don't establish a strong basis of trust. On the flip side, I'm interested in whether physicians trust, uh, whether the, the environment they work in, whether the leaders they're working with are looking out for their own best interests or really caring about that doctor-patient, provider-patient relationship. This gets into your second bucket, which is sort of between leaders and providers. There's a huge problem. We know that people don't quit the jobs they're in, they, they quit their leaders. And, and we all see this. And my belief is that trust is at the center of every relationship. And there's a huge gap right now. Uh, I know as well, uh, you had Amy Edmondson on last week, a Harvard Business School professor and a pioneer in this area of psychological safety. And we underappreciate how important that is and how often it's lacking when providers are working in a system where they don't trust their leaders. As an educator, Robbie, uh, teaching in medical schools and also teaching future leaders in business, how much emphasis do you place on the role of trust over or in addition to the role of process and profits? The answer is going to be a massive amount. But before I answer your question, how did you end up with the patient? What did you end up doing? And what was the outcome of your interaction? I'm sure every listener is going to want to know as much as I do. You've left us right on the edge of our seat. With that particular patient, I realized that unless I addressed the issue head on and I called out what was already unspoken, it was going to hang in the room and leave. And she was going to take it to her next interaction. I was the second or third opinion that she had. And so I asked her, I said, were there issues with your trust? In fact, I didn't have to ask her. I just said, it seems like you don't trust the medical system, just based on some of the things she was saying, that it wasn't just this, and, and this is so often the truth. If we are harmed by someone, if we're deceived by someone, if we're cheated by someone, we can either take that as a one-time event, which we don't typically do, or we can allow that to color our view, our model of how the world treats us and how everyone treats us, this particular patient took it and it colored all of her interactions and I could see that. And so we, I opened up a conversation about whether or not she trusted the healthcare system. And then I, I challenged her a little bit and I asked whether she believed that because one bad experience or several bad experiences, did that mean that she wasn't going to be open to trusting me? And it, it gave her some pause there, Robbie. Uh, and she, in that moment could see I wasn't someone who was interested in steamrolling and being paternalistic. And I made it very clear, as I do with all my patients, in this new model of shared responsibility, shared decision-making, I'm not going to tell people what to do. I'm, I'm going to do my best to help guide them. And I think saying that 
showed my humility to this particular patient. And I've tried to return to the basic words that we all learn when we start our training, which is primum non nocere, which is first do no harm. And, uh, and I made that a priority and she continued to be a patient of mine and we've had a wonderful relationship since then. That's great. I'm, I'm excited for her that she was able to find someone like you who she could trust and develop that relationship with. And as you said, had that humility to be vulnerable, to be honest, and to let her know when you don't know something, but also to let her know when you do have an expert opinion. Mm. So going back to the question you posed, as you know, Jonathan, I teach leadership, both at the business school, I do it um, in, in companies, I do it uh, for leaders of a variety of organizations. And invariably, what the people are coming there for is they're having difficulty getting people to follow them. There's some change they want to do, could be a large change or it could be a departmental type change. And despite their sending out a ton of emails and organizing a bunch of events, they can't get traction hmm. and they're confused. And, and they come to me to, you know, so going on high to get the tablets to figure out. And of course there are no tablets and there's nothing I can exactly give them. So I do what teachers always do, which is the Socratic method. I turn it around and I ask them, why do you think people don't <laughs> do the things that you're doing? And you would imagine they'd be asking themselves that question all of the time, but they don't. And so we develop, I let them give me the ideas for what they think it to be. And I'm going to point for listeners who may not have gone to medical school. There's a structure in the brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is a uh, pain source that comes from a variety of fear. So it becomes activated if you see something that makes you um, get concerned that something negative is going to happen to you into the future. And it creates, releases chemical uh, substances that you experience as being pain. Pain is severe as physical Pain. So what is why are some of the things that I've heard about why leaders find it so hard to change or get people to follow them? The first thing is people are afraid that they're being lied to. Hmm. They're being told something, but when it actually comes to happen, it's not going to be there. They feel like they're being manipulated, that they're going to be embarrassed when all the facts came out. What a fool they were to listen and trust this individual coming out of the administrative suite. Hmm. They feel like they're not going to be treated or they're not being treated fairly. There's a very classic economic game called the ultimatum game. Hmm. You, you bring someone in one room and there's someone in another room and you tell the person in the first room, I'm going to, I have a hundred dollars and you can split it any way you want between yourself and this person in the other room. And after you've decided how you want to divide it, I'm going to go to the other room and I'm going to tell the person what you came up with. And they have two choices. They can agree to take the split or they can refuse to take the split. If they agree to take the split, you'll get your money. They'll get their money. If they say they refuse, no one gets any money. You both leave with nothing. Got a classic economics, what it would say, I can keep $99 and give you one. And why would you ever turn down $1? Hmm. 
But they've now done this study in nations around the globe, and it's always the same. If you give me less than about 30%, sometimes 40%, I'm going to turn down your offer. Hmm. It doesn't make any economic sense. What's going on? When I get offered less than that, my amygdala fires, and the pain of that is great is greater than the money I'm going to receive because I feel like I'm being unfairly treated. And of course, there's other ones on the list that you're asking me for too much, that I'll never get a chance to go home and see my family. So all of these fears sit in place. And instead of being able to talk about what people are feeling, the fears they have, the concerns they have, we always talk about the things that are good. Oh, this will be so great. We'll make a lot more money. This will be so great because our reputation will go up. And until we address those underlying fears, and those fears really come down to this question you're posing, which is around trust. And I like how you divided the credibility versus the trust, dividing the things that are you know, posted on media statements versus the things that we feel that are not you know, measures of whether you award, run an award or whether you achieve a certain metric that there's just something about that human to human relationship that we don't understand. And my experience is that when leaders are willing to open the floor to talk about the trust issues, to acknowledge often that there were failures in the past, that these concerns have a validity, that something happened before that ended up being misinformation, manipulation, unfairness, asking things that were simply impossible to achieve. And the people in the room trust that individual that they are being authentic and honest and humble and will do their best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Then that amygdala quiets down. And then I think people are willing to go ahead. They still want to understand the details. They want to make sure it's going to work. They want to believe that it's the best path forward. Those are intellectual functions. But until you can, using your vernacular, quiet the heart, there's no way that you can engage the brain. Mm. Robbie, it's uh, it's great to hear your perspective. I mean, it's this is uh, real world uh, what we're teaching our leaders and the challenges that leaders are having. And I noticed there's a parallel. The way that you describe the approach is to first begin by acknowledging a breach of trust. I think sometimes it's as simple as that not steamrolling it um, and not moving forward with the arrogance to say, I don't have to apologize. And there's a power in apology there. Of course, in our medicine culture, it's almost a taboo to apologize, at least for doctors. Many of us believe that if we apologize, we admit guilt, and then there's a potential for, for lawsuit. But there's a parallel in how you might coach a leader to the approach that I took with that patient, which is to begin by acknowledging that her trust was broken. Uh, and I think that goes a long way. You also made reference to the economics uh, of trust and how you know competition breeds fear, which takes us into you know, using your three buckets, your th three groups where uh, in healthcare trust is an issue, it's between colleagues. And I, I don't just mean between doctors and doctors, I'm talking about doctors and nurses, nurses and nurses, uh, all other healthcare team members and providers. And because if there's a code or somebody is having cardiac arrest in the emergency room, it's not just a doctor in the room. There could be a team of 10 people. 
And the care and the likelihood that that patient survives, I've seen this, is directly tied to whether there is a smooth operation of that team, which is based on, do I trust this person based on our common experience? Are they reliable, not just knowledgeable? And so when I think about burnout on the provider side, which as we know, and if we've spoken about, this is a crisis, which if not addressed, is going to lead for a worsening workforce shortage. We're expect expecting a shortage of nearly 100,000 physicians by 2030, something like 60 to 80,000 nurses by the same year. One of the reasons, and I know this from my work as an organizational well-being leader, one of the reasons that we are burning out is because we've lost a sense of camaraderie, a sense of teamwork, a sense of doing this together because we've been taught to go it alone. And I think there's a lot of mistrust around who's getting paid what, What's the model of payment that we're getting? How much competition is there in our system? And I know you're an expert in healthcare finance and payment models and all of this. I'm curious, Robbie, have you seen a difference in whether there's a culture of trust based on how doctors and providers are paid uh, versus not? There's always a conflict over pay. I don't care what organization you're in. And I think it stems back to some research that was done about our perceptions of ourselves and how inaccurate it often is. I mean, the classical study is you ask people to put themselves uh, somewhere, say the, you know, the bottom quarter, the bottom third, the middle third or the top third in terms of any ability you want to talk about. You can talk about... Uh, how smart they are, how good looking they are, how well they do math, how athletic they are. It almost, it almost doesn't matter. And 90% of people will put themselves in the top half. Mathematically, completely impossible. And more than half of people will put themselves in the top 10%. Now, that's a good thing. We want to be confident. We want to be optimistic. But when you get into areas that have uh, meta meaning, if you want to think about it that way, uh, then that can become problematic. And when it comes to pay, that's the case. Uh, in invariably, individuals feel that they're underpaid, not necessarily because the money makes that much difference in their life if they had a little bit more, or a little bit less. It always helps, but because it's the sign, it's how we measure value and respect. Mm. And this goes back to the same notion. If you don't think of me, if you don't value me to the level you should, it's very, feels unfair. And it's insulting and it's painful. So I think this, it invariably happens and everyone has their justification for why they believe that their specialty, their own performance needs to be better rewarded than it is. And leaders have to manage that and bring it out and discuss it. Hmm. Uh, but I want to go back to when you talk about the doctor patient, this is not a horizontal relationship. The doctor has the expertise, the patient comes for it. When you talk about a leader and you talk about the people who are reporting to that leader or in some way have, being uh, under the auspices of that individual, you also have a very much a vertical relationship because you have someone who has a lot of power over you. But when you talk about colleagues, you're talking much more about a horizontal relationship. It can be between two people who are in the same specialty, in the same department, and to some extent 
true peers. They can be across specialties where there can be variation in expertise and knowledge. They can be, as you say, between different clinicians with different amounts of training, but it's a relatively horizontal relationship, not a vertical one. And I think there, I often start with the question of, is the conflict that's happening one of facts or perception? Because we, I think we often uh, conflate those two. You know, we, we view it as though it's a matter of opinion when actually there are facts out there. And I think when that happens, what leaders need to do to resolve that conflict is to be able to bring the data forward. Hmm. Right? Yeah. What actually happens uh, on a code? Can we review the performance? Can we review the right steps? Can we all agree that next time, here, here's what we're going to do. Here's going to be the captain of the team. Here's the person who will create the decisions. Whatever it's going to be, th these are the kinds of facts that can be established by best practice, by research, by data, by analytics. And when that exists, taking the emotion out completely, hmm. I have found to be effective. Hmm. The challenge really is when it's a matter of perception. Because now perception is not about facts, it's about emotion. There's always facts involved. And people approach it as though it is a matter of fact. I'm going to give you a problem. You know, I just, uh, last week, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was teaching about 300 physicians around this area. And one of the questions I got, and I'm going to throw it to you, Jonathan, mm -hmm. and it's a tough question. I'll warn you in advance. <laughs> this was the question about the size of leave that women should be given following birth on the birth of a child. As you well know, every other country in the world, particularly the Scandinavian nations, has an extended amount of time that people can take paid time off. And the United States has a very much more narrow one. Hmm. And this particular group, I uh, was hiring a lot of younger physicians, newly added training, and very often, since the people are now in their early 30s, they're very anxious to have a child, and very early in their tenure, first couple of years, they have a baby and they want to be able to spend the time with that child. They've made that decision. And as you might gather, there are individuals in the room who are in that age group who see that as something that they feel very entitled to, particularly as the values and mores and norms in American culture has evolved. And there are other people there for a variety of reasons who don't. And they asked me what I think should be the policy relative to maternity leave. How might you have answered it? Mm. Well, I would first ask my wife, who's <laughs> given birth to all three of our children. I had very little to do with it. Um, you know, my, my opinion would be based on my own personal experience, my family, my friends. And this is how I think, you know, we begin to answer questions with our, within our own scope of knowledge, which, you know, there's a standard of around three months or so. Uh, and my mind, as you asked that question and the way you framed it was, you know, getting beyond feelings about it. And that's a tall order to say, let's not put our feelings here because we're talking about the most sacred bond between the mother and a child and a family and a child. 
versus what may be seen on the other end as a cold and uncaring workplace. So there's a potential in this conversation, Robbie, to worsen the conflict and animosity and sense of us versus them in the workplace. Um, as I answer it, you know, I, I think about what are the norms? What are the norms uh, within the region, within the country? And what are the outcomes of that that we care about in terms of what is the mental and psychological and emotional well-being of the mother as not only as a, but especially as a mother, and also uh, in the workplace. How does that impact her patients when she returns to care, if we're talking about healthcare? Are there negative downstream effects if we prolong that leave for too long? So I think I would take a scientist's approach to it first and, and also be very human about it and call out the fact, as you did, this is an incredibly emotional issue and unless we talk about those emotions, we cannot approach this as an uncaring, unfeeling, Spock-like robot, or people will not listen to our answers. I think we do have to bring feelings into the conversation, but I would start with observations. I'm not familiar with the data. I'll, I'll put it back to you. I can tell you how, how I answered it. And remember, I'm in the role of leader here, uh, but I am working uh, uh, with colleagues of similar training. And the first thing I did exactly what you said, you know, what does the data say about women, a woman recovering? What does it say about the very early time for a child? Uh, a medical perspective, we don't want to do anything to create harm. But then I shifted the conversation because I think if we focused only on the question of maternity time, then you have winners and losers. And I said, you know, there are a lot of people who have issues around the need to help others, whether it's a newborn child, or a parent, or a spouse. Uh, there are a lot of people who have uh, needs because they're a single mother versus being a, in a married relationship. There's a lot of issues that are out there and that we need to look at this question of how are we going to meet the needs of everyone? How can we come up with a policy? As I say, once we get past whatever those minimums are, relative specific to recovering from the uh, phys physiological impact of pregnancy and delivery. We need to be able to figure out a plan that would allow everyone to be able to understand how we can maximize that time available for these very vital life experiences and life events, for the bonding on the, on, on the father's side, for the uh, issue of the mother, it may be a mother who had a surrogate. It may be a mother who carried a child. It may be a mother who had a complication. There are all these parameters that are there. And I think that we have, you may have a illness unrelated to pregnancy. How are, we, how are we gonna manage all these pieces to maximize the flexibility, the fulfillment, the sense of having a complete life in a way that starts to work. And by shifting it, from a very specific question of X number of months to being a more broad one, at least I think I got the conversation going so that everyone saw it as something they could win on. And within all of that, I think people became comfortable that childbirth is a particular kind of event that does require time, despite the fact that physically a person could return unlike maybe following an illness or some other type of problem that gets in the way. Mm -hmm. So I think 
leadership is shifting it. Once we get past the facts, once we get past the science, uh, once we get past the uh, parts that we can all agree upon, I think then we have to focus on that emotion. And often we sweep that away and it becomes us versus you. You are too greedy. You are too selfish. You know, I'm the one who's being mistreated. And I think that's invariably negative because as we said before, it's going to create this pain of unfairness. And the majority of the people will feel that they're being unfairly treated, even though that may not be the intent of the leader, the intent of the person making the change that needs to occur. And I think I think by the end of this session, people had a at least a more broad understanding and will and willingness to accept a plan. And I think the leaders in the room who were also listening in, obviously, uh, were then able to will be able to, they haven't yet done it yet, to create an approach that's going to meet your needs wherever you might be across your career, in whatever situation you might be in in your personal life, and be able to be, I'll call it respectful. Because I think respect is a major part of trust. Hmm. And I think if the patient thinks that we don't respect them, they're not going to trust us and believe us. If the people we lead don't think we respect them, they're not going to trust us. We often think it's about us, how smart we are, how successful we are, how effective we are, and really it comes down to how well we respect the other people in whom we're asking quite a bit of, but that is often not how it feels in a, I'll say, a hierarchical work situation. Mm. Ravi, it's such a an informative answer that you just gave, and I can just see you, you know, giving that response and shifting the conversation from one that's highly charged to one that turns into a, a questioning, open, curious. Um, really a place of psychological safety where you begin by asking broader questions, not what serves you or what serves the person next to you, but what are the broader principles at play? And the word that is ringing around in my mind as you're speaking is wisdom. Um, and that's what you're describing is applying real wisdom, which is taking a, a broad perspective to a very complicated problem, which requires humility, which requires curiosity, which requires listening. And bringing it back to this conversation, I, I do think that in order to build a trusting relationship, we have to have wisdom. And uh, the people that are putting their trust in us, trust that we have some wisdom, that we will do the right thing after taking all those voices into account. So I really appreciate you know, your vision of uh, leadership and how you create conversation that can lead to better outcomes for everyone. I like that a lot, Jonathan. You know, if you think about it, you know, the, there's a wisdom that says it's our privilege to take care of a patient, not the reverse. Mm. There's a wisdom that says it's our privilege to be a leader, not the reverse. It's not a, a power role. So it's a privileged role. And it's a privilege to have the great colleagues that all of us have in medicine and finding ways to be able to respect them. I think starts to shift the amygdala of all of us. Let's turn it over to, uh, to Jeremy for the question for the two of us and see what he got out of this conversation. Earlier, you had discussed why Robbie and I started Coronavirus the Truth as a way to hear the most up-to-date information on COVID-19 without the spin and politics that often came from it from other sources. And it made me want to ask your both of your thoughts on something. When we as patients go to the doctor, we always assume our doctor has pure motives and will give us the best care possible. 
I'm curious, to what extent do outside influences impact the care we receive from our doctors? Obviously, this is not going to be all doctors, but to what extent can political ideology impact the care we receive, for example? Is a doctor conservative ideologically versus very liberal ideologically? Is that going to impact their thoughts on something such as coronavirus for the fear of needing to stay within their ideological camp? I also think of the influence of pharmaceutical companies on physicians. Are they going to prescribe more expensive new drugs as opposed to a drug that is cheaper and has been around a while or extra rounds of chemotherapy for a cancer patient when that might not actually be in their best interest and hospice care is really the best choice or a medical device company's influence, for example, on orthopedic surgeons in a way that they might be selling a patient a hip or shoulder that is way more fancy and expensive than the one they would actually need to make more money. To what extent do these outside influences such as politics, pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, more compensation, et cetera, impact the care physicians give to patients? And what are your thoughts around this? I love that question, Jeremy. And it really picks up on the conversation that we had here a month ago, which was about the bias and how often there are biases that are shaping our decisions as doctors, nurses, leaders that we have absolutely no awareness of. Uh, even when it's called out to us, we, we tend to have blind spots and deny it. And I think you laid out a litany of uh, domains where our decisions are biased. And you, you're, the way you asked the question was to what extent, and that's really hard to answer because there's over 900,000 physicians in this country right now. And I would, I would bet that each one would answer this question differently. Uh, from my own perspective, I, I want to keep in mind that I have my own background and biases and that my approach is not the best approach. And if I am prescribing a medicine more often than its competitor drug, even though the data aren't as strong. And if I am, uh, if I am guilty in a sense of doing that because there was a pharmaceutical representative who happened to bring lunch to my office three months ago, uh, first off, uh, I'll say that I'm not alone there and these influences are real. Um, I want that pointed out to me. I would like to know that so that I can make a more neutral decision. I would say to what extent? Very widespread. I would say it's widespread. Our politics, our religion inform our decisions. On the other hand, very beginning of medical school, we are taught to not let our own background influence the fairness and equity and compassion of the care that we give for another human being. So Jeremy, you hit on a conflict that will never go away as long as it is humans that are giving the care, which gets back to uh, the elephant in the room, which is chat GPT and uh, other such uh, AI models. Uh, one of the benefits there is that they uh, can potentially sidestep some of the biases based on our own uh, racial background, which we know influences the quality of care and the decisions we make. Um, and so, that would be my beginning of an answer to a very challenging question. Robbie? I love the question, Jeremy, because it brings out the opportunity to recognize how much happens subconsciously. Uh, Jonathan mentioned bias, and the research at Harvard talks about implicit bias. Yes, there are a few people who overtly discriminate, but what the research shows is that the majority of people treat different groups of individuals, the ones like themselves, who look like themselves, or talk like themselves, or come from a similar background, 
differently than the ones who don't. And when I've thought a lot, which I'm doing these days about these subconscious processes, it's clear to me that if it's subconscious, you can't address it because you're not aware that it exists. And so we have to acknowledge it at a societal level. And Jonathan may be right. We can accomplish it through ChatGPT as well. And the literature on bias is one we could spend a lot of time on. It's not a very pretty literature, but it's one we need to be able to face and being able to know when we're acting in a biased kind of way. But you're raising another point, which is around these incentives, the economic incentives, whether it's the opportunity to have a, a dinner, uh, to attend a dinner at a very fancy restaurant, or even a very small gift. We know that subconsciously research has shown that we feel a need, a norm, a expectation that we're going to reciprocate. It's when you go to the airport, you see people uh, from groups trying to raise money. They give you something first, a flower, a pen or something else. Because once you've received it and taken it, you feel an obligation to give something back. If not, you become the jerk. And that is how the process happens, whether it's going to be, I'll say, inappropriate influence on the drugs you prescribe, whether it's going to be the devices that you use, whether it's going to be the recommendations that you make when you have income that will come to you. Uh, this is a, such a sensitive arena. I want to be very clear to listeners. It's not that anyone in medicine does these things consciously for their own benefit. That's not what happens. The people going into medicine are mission-driven, highly purposed, highly ethical. It's just that that's what happens because the human brain then shifts the facts so that we don't believe that it influences our decisions. And therefore it becomes an educational, not a sales dinner. And we could go down the whole list of things that you've said, Jeremy, but every one of them is influenced. The political views is going to influence how we make decisions because how the people that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are going to respect us or not respect us. Incentives are incredibly powerful. They're difficult to control. I tell leaders all the time, if you create a financial incentive, you will make change happen just rarely the change you want to see. But what we do know is that those incentives that can shift outcomes in ways that are beneficial to the person, that's what's likely to happen. And you will not be aware that it is occurring. You will not feel like you're being influenced. It's like advertising. I've never seen an advertisement that says, why would anyone do that? And yet we know that people advertise because that is exactly the outcome that happens. And it happens to all of us. It's been shown to have nothing to do with your education, nothing to do with your intelligence. It's just the way the underlying human brain works. It relates back tens of thousands of years. And I think the questions you're posing is that it happens and patients need to be aware of it. And luckily, my perspective, the Sunshine Act was passed in the past, which makes it mandatory that clinicians post all of the dollars they received from for-profit companies, device manufacturers, drug uh, pharmaceutical manufacturing uh, companies. And I might, 
If I have any question about a recommendation being made by the doctor, check that database. It's publicly available to see if my physician received any type of dollars. And if the individual did, I might get a second opinion from someone who's not on that list. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.